Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. All right, inspiring people and places, excited to uh, introduce our next guest, who actually will be our launch into the development industry. We often talk about architect, engineering, construction, and development, but most of our guests have been from the public engineering and public construction community. Our next guest is a veteran that uh, transitioned in the development industry and is going to talk to us all about his transition from the military and, and kind of his evolution in the development side of the business. So uh, without further ado, my good friend, Mike Valley. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. It's good to be with you, BJ. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. I, I have to say for our, our audience, this is a very personal relationship. Mike Valley and I go back 23 years because I got to West Point in 2000. Uh, Mike was a firstie on the swim team and kind of a big brother to me, my plebe year. His sister and I are classmates, Kristen. So shout out to Kristen. Excited to have Mike on the on the podcast. And we've stayed in touch through the years, following each other's kind of career path. We've been dabbling in some of the same areas. Uh, so Mike, the, the way we start the show is really for you to give everybody a taste of your career path as early as is meaningful to you. Uh, I imagine starting at West Point and then uh, you know what you did in your military career and, and how the transition and development happened. Yeah. Um, and again, thanks for having me on. I mean, I think, I think these podcasts are fantastic. I'm, I've been watching and listening kind of in the background. So you, you have been inspiring people. I'm one of them. And um, I appreciate everything you're doing. It's it's kind of a, a real humbling experience just to even be a part of this. So, you know, I, I grew up in Illinois, West Central Illinois, a little town named Quincy, was was looking for, you know, challenge and adventure and ended up at West Point. It was um, a, a route in life for me that was kind of an opportunity to push myself to be as good as I could be. And I, I think a lot of people ended up there looking for that kind of challenge and adventure and, and you know, as an opportunity to serve. So, you know, went to one of the best engineering schools in the world and I got a psychology degree. And uh, <laughs> It was it was a really molding experience, I think, for a lot of us, and for me especially. It learned, you know, I, you know, I thought I was a pretty good leader, but there's more to leadership than just you know getting people to kind of like and follow you. There's there's more to it with, you know, setting a great example and doing what's right when it's hard to do, and um, you know, finding ways to connect with and inspire people um, and take care of them. And so coming out of West Point, I, I went out and I was in the field artillery. And first duty station was in Germany, which was fantastic. Landed there with a bunch of guys that I didn't really know, um, but be, ended up becoming lifelong friends with. And we traveled all over and, you know, had great experiences and, and got a chance to, you know, go hang out in Iraq for 15 months. <laughs> um, and, you know, kind of round about And, and my, this, was, this was really the beginning because you, you right. graduated 2001. You were the first class to deploy, you were deploying as second lieutenants, right? That That's right. Yeah. So we, 9-11 happened as we were in officer basic course, so right after our graduation. So we, yeah. we went into the army, you know, in a peacetime state and ended up, yeah, 
going into the desert. Yeah, not what not what we expected or signed up for, but you know, all part of what shapes your life, right? Funny enough, I, I sort of got my first taste of what what kind of impact you can have on a community, on people, uh, when you make a, kind of a lasting positive change in a community. Um, and so, as I was a platoon leader in Baghdad, one of the one of the kind of hearts and minds missions that we had was that I had, I was tasked with going out and doing some renovation work in schools in the area. And it was, it was nothing huge. It was fixing some windows and gates and helping them put new doors on. And and we went and rounded up local Iraqi contractors and, and did a bunch of that work. And the way that it, it really lit up um, the children, um, their parents, the principals and teachers of these schools, like they didn't know us. But they were so happy with some of the mm. improvements that we made. Like I said, that that sort of kind of lit the fuse for me of like w- what it what it means to go do something meaningful and impactful in a community. And yeah. um, and that really stuck with me. Um, I didn't know it at the time that how impactful it was going to be, but um, looking back, <laughs> it's obvious. So, so um, you did 15 months in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, did you do another deployment, or was that? That was your deployment, and then you started looking at getting out at some point um, at your five-year mark. Mm-hmm. That was my only deployment, um, and I'm, I'm thankful for those who have done many more than I have because I know there are a lot of my classmates and yours who have done, you know, multiple multiple deployments. So yeah, did that. Came back and, and went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, for about a year and a half, and served in the artillery head, headquarters there for a little while before transitioning off of active duty i did go into the national guard for about two years okay which is great experience too wasn't quite ready to hang it up and i think there's a lot of value in garden reserve time and you know i know that that's meaningful to you too and yeah uh, you know it's just a way to continue to serve but at that point i was looking to get married and the deployment cycle was pretty quick you know you're on you're off and that wasn't right. really the way that i wanted to launch a family so um chose to go with the guard so when you were when you were getting out what i i don't know at what point did you get a job and or did you go to development did you have a job as kind of a placeholder before you found the development industry no i mean i had no idea what i was going to do when i grew up and <laughs> they didn't you know nobody needed me to shoot cannons in the civilian world so i had to do something <laughs> i had a very good friend from germany who transitioned to you know from active duty to civilian life about a year ahead of me and he got into real estate development work down on the gulf coast and and as i was exploring my transition trying to figure out what in the world am i going to do um he you know i was talking with him and he said you know what come and shadow with me for a few days and just see what i do i think you'd be good at it it's you know it's one of those lines of work where you don't really have to be an expert at anything, but if you understand how systems fit together and how to kind of help people all move in the same direction to accomplish a goal, you can learn the business and and kind of figure it out. And and so I went and shadowed him and it looked really interesting and I had no other options or ideas. And so I was like, okay, we'll try this. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is post Katrina golf coast. Correct. Yeah. So, so this is like 2006. And okay. Katrina was in 2005. And so, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up Katrina because my first development role was with a, a small 
kind of boutique development firm in Biloxi, Mississippi, which just I kind of fell into the opportunity. Um, I needed a job, needed to pay bills. Uh, I was newly married and, you know, some pressures there. And so, um, you know, I, I arrived at this little development company about a year after Hurricane Katrina. And there was a, I mean, it, gosh, BJ, it, it looked like, you know, a nuclear bomb had just gone off last week. Yeah. It was unbelievable. And so there was a lot of work to do there. And I was really fortunate to to join the Ramco Developments where I got to work directly for the CEO. I got to really roll up my sleeves and get my hands on a lot of things that helped me gain experience and know-how in the industry and just kind of how things work. And he gave me a lot of rope to run with, just kind of jumped in and figured it out. Um, it, it was not truly intentional to go join a very small shop like that, and but it right. turned out to be a really great um, introduction to the industry and an opportunity for me to kind of get launched. And then, so for for our listeners that aren't familiar with real estate development, talk about some of the different types of activities you're getting involved in, because I know, like you said, you might not be an expert in finance, but you're touching finance. You might not be an expert in design or construction or entitlements, but you're touching all of that, I assume? Yes. Yeah. And so in the development world, in, in this, you know, in a small firm, this is a good example where you know, we would find a great piece of property where maybe it was vacant land or underutilized and um, you, you kind of come up with a vision for its highest and best use. What what could go there? And, a lot, you know, a lot of people can drive around and say, man, it'd be great to have a grocery store here. Or, this is a great right. spot for a drugstore or whatever. Um, you know, to, to find a good piece of land well located and, and come, you know, think through its highest and best use. Um, you know, then is the effort of, as you say, kind of going and trying to acquire the land, get it under contract. Um, you have to do some financial underwriting, understanding what's it going to cost to build what you want to build. What is the process to do that? You have to go through a city to get it rezoned and that sort of development approval work comes along. There's design work where you're guiding civil engineers, architects, um, and, you know, other design professionals to start to conceptually um, create what could go there. And, you know, if, if you've got a, a prototypical grocery store or whatever the case may be, like, you know, there are design specs that you can lean on, right. whatever that end user is going to be. They have their own specifications they want built. Um, and then there's, you know, okay, you've got a great idea. You've got a concept designed and you've, you've had, you know, the city has said, yes, we'll let you build that. And, and then it's like, okay, well, now we got to pay for it. <laughs> And so, you know, that's the other big piece of it, too, is like going and finding the financing for it, whether it's you, know, you maybe put some of your own money in, you borrow from a bank. Maybe there's some, you know, mezzanine debt or investor um, equity that kind of goes into a deal. But there's lots of ways to kind of financially engineer a deal as well. Um, and, and then finish off the design work and go and construct it. It's sort of a big puzzle and it yeah. can be quite complicated. That's part of what makes it fun and makes it rewarding. Like I said, like I'm pretty good at understanding all of those things. See, I'm, that's the psychology degree. Right, that's right. the psychology <laughs> degree coming back, understanding yeah. people and understanding yeah. all those things. Talk to us about some of the product type that Ramco uh, allowed you to touch. Mm -hmm. We worked on condominium projects on the beach. Uh, we worked on 
shopping centers, worked on some light industrial, did you know some work on a kind of a large scale uh, shopping center and entertainment complex kind of mixed use. Um, it was a little bit of all different kinds of stuff. And, you know, I mean, along the way, I got to see enough and interact with enough other professionals in the industry. That I was constantly borrowing from other people like, oh, you've done a pro forma on apartments before. Would you mind if I see that? Could I borrow that? Would you send me that file? And a lot of times people right. are willing to just help out and they'll just say, hey, yeah, I'll send it to you. And so I cobbled together information from a lot of different directions and, of course, had guidance from the leadership of the company. but. Um, you know, just kind of figure it out, go figure it out, yeah. Lieutenant, you know? Um, that's, and so that's pretty that's awesome. A lot of what we did. So you went from Ramco, which sounds like opportunistic, entrepreneurial mm -hmm. uh, organization. And then at some point in time, you get an opportunity at the opposite of that, which is <laughs> big corporate real estate at, at Walmart. Right, right. How did that come about? Well, it was quite, you know, quite a transition. So I was with Ramco for about six years and right in the middle of there somewhere, I, you know, got an itch to go and refine my skill set personally and, and, you know, kind of expand my knowledge of how to be successful and, and drive projects and that sort of thing. So went to Tulane University uh, about every other weekend, did an executive MBA program. Okay. and shout out to my wife emily uh we are our oldest child was about 15 or 16 months and she was you know pretty pregnant with second kid and i'm signing up to go to new orleans every other weekend and um <laughs> so but the you know that was a fantastic experience and for anybody who's considering any kind of advanced schooling you know look i look i thought about going to law school after the army and stuff like that I thought it, it worked out really, really well to actually get some real world experience under my belt. Yeah. And then have a better purpose and um, reason for going to school instead of just just go get a degree. It's kind of kind of applied academics. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're working on the fly. Exactly. It's like a co-op degree almost. Right. And in addition to that, I mean, the folks in my class. Uh, gosh, they were bringing 10, 15, 20 years of real world experience to class discussions. And so those, the, the lessons were so rich in, in real examples of what was going on. So back to the Walmart transition, there was actually a Walmart executive in my class okay. and he was doing the same thing. He was, he was running store operations, for, gosh, like three States at that point and got to know him over coffee in the morning and being in study groups and that sort of thing. And of course, in business school, you study Walmart, right? So, um, <laughs> and so anyway, long story short, I got an, an entree to the real estate department at Walmart and managed to get myself hired there. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, you're right. It was a, a big time transition from a small entrepreneurial shop to a, like one of the biggest institutional, most refined real estate teams in the world they're really right good. systematic exactly yeah and so that was a great experience you know i got to really work at volume there see um, professional processes in place work with some i mean real professionals who had you know have been doing real estate for walmart for 20 25 years and had built yeah. thousands of new new stores and so there was just i mean there was just 
knowledge and experience tripping off the walls there. And all you had to do is just go run around, soak it up. And, and I did. I, I have a question, you know, maybe a little off topic. And, and if, if you didn't experience it, fine. But I remember talking at one point when Walmart was exploring kind of smaller, smaller store formats for maybe inner cities. And, you know, I don't know if I'm, I'm saying it right, but going from the big box suburban, you know, NIMBY fight into, mm-hmm. hey, what other what other smaller formats can we have to to deliver our retail experience? Mm-hmm. How did that kind of exploration innovation happen around you? Were you touching it at all? How was it affecting the the quote machine mm-hmm. that was used to finding big, you know, big piece of land, putting a big box there, going to the next big piece of land. Yeah. I was really fortunate to get to be kind of hands-on in some of the experimental work. Um, you know, one thing about Walmart is they're, they are maniacally customer focused and Mm -hmm. how can we serve our customers the way they want to be served, help them save money. And as part of that mindset and mantra, they were always looking for ways to disrupt the industry to a degree and deliver in ways that are not being delivered right now. And so this, you know, this is back in, oh, 2014 or so, you know, online retail is not a new thing, but the, the intersection of digital commerce, e-commerce and physical retail commerce was, was still getting kind of sussed out. And so one of the programs I worked on was trying to figure out how do we, how do we go into a place like Phoenix and put it put in, you know, eight or ten facilities that can serve gas. You can pick up your online order, and oh, by the way, you can pick up a food order that's you know you place ahead of time, and it's like a one-stop shop for a busy professional coming home or busy anybody coming home. They can right. grab the things they need and get out in a convenient spot. That kind of stayed with me. Their willingness to try things. Yeah, and we went and tried a few different things that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> frankly. And, you know, yeah. they went and tested them, beta tested them, built them, tried them out. And some things didn't work, but then that leads to the next idea and gets you to a place where eventually you land on something that's like, this is it. This is, this is what it needs to be. Yeah. And there, there are folks that, you know, they kind of stick to the tried and true, but the Walmart team team is, is pretty good about finding ways to, to swim upstream and, and do it yeah. in new ways. So. And then at some point in time, you go from Walmart into the self storage business. How did that transition come about? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe I'll rewind you for one yeah. one little blip. Um, I got a chance to actually go work in supply chain and logistics for Walmart too. Oh, really? Yeah, and the the same gentleman who was in my MBA class at Tulane ended up kind of being a a friend and mentor along the way as I was growing at Walmart and over coffee one morning. So, you know what? You're doing good work. You can expand your horizons here at this company if you get into an operational focused, operationally focused role. You know, have you thought about doing something like that? Like, well, I don't really want to do store operations, but logistics and supply chain, that's pretty interesting to me. He's like, okay. Well, then you ought to figure out, you know, let's, let's kind of think about how that would happen. And so the short of it is I didn't know anything about logistics and supply chain, really. <laughs> but, you know, I kind of had the team leadership thing and know how to, you know, work with a big team and, you know, business management and kind of executive leadership. Got it. I can kind of, I can lean on that strength. 
but as a way to learn about the logistics business, I went on weekends and on my PO, PTO time and went to like local distribution center. And, you know, I got a hold of the general manager of the facility. I was like, hey, can I come spend time on your floor working, learning the jobs? And he's like, yeah, great. Come on. And so I, I would do that. And I would just go spend time working. I I'd, I'd scheduled a hundred different lunches and coffee meetings with people in, in that side of the business, just trying to learn about the business. And eventually an opportunity popped up and I went out in Columbus, Ohio area and ran a distribution center for a while. That's awesome. And it was, it was, it was great. It was a great experience. Um, taught me a lot of things. One being that I'm better suited to be a real estate professional than a logistics <laughs> professional. <laughs> But, but I mean, that's part of life, right? Is trying stuff. Yeah, that's, and, how, you, that's um, how you, that's how you learn. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so then that, that kind of led to my transition back into real estate about the time that I was, you know, ready to depart supply chain. The Walmart real estate department was shutting down largely with their new store development program and focusing a lot on e-commerce. Okay. So I took the opportunity to kind of, I was like, man, I want to go back to those entrepreneurial roots. And so I kind of set up my own little company and was working on a bunch of deals. And I was just about to get launched when public storage kind of found me through an executive recruiter and, and hired me in to do development work for them. Gotcha. So that's one thing, you know, as, as folks are thinking about the development world, it's, and I've, I've heard in, you know, other conversations in your podcast that, you know, you just, you need to be mindful of where's the paycheck coming from. And, and can you float your family or float your situation for an expended, extended period of time if you need to, and, you know, just be, be prepared that you can't just say, I'm going to go do this one day and you turn on this picket and it's like, okay, it, yeah. it doesn't just happen with cash flow. Turnkey, be turnkey deals aren't, aren't right. just hanging everywhere. Right. Right. And so anyway, so, I mean, that, you know, was, was one of those points in time where it's like, man, I'm just about to get launched with my own private work and I'm, I've got some deals coming through and they're working and it's looking like it's going to work. But then the, you know, the corporate role kind of came knocking and I thought, you know, with, with a young family, it sort of makes sense in this scenario to, to get back into a little bit more of a steady income. And, um, I think this is important too. I got a chance to learn a totally new asset class. I was going to say that. Mm -hmm. And and so self storage is you know, it has garnered more attention and headlines in the last five years than it ever has. It's crazy. Um, what 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 is that that's making it? I mean, I don't know if our our audience is following that from an investment standpoint, but it seems to be the hottest asset class for investment right now. And what is that? Just talk to us about that trend. Yeah, I mean, so. It, it, self storage has been around for 50 plus years and, and public stores where I worked was, I don't want to say they, they kind of created the industry, but they're really one of the founding shaping factors in, in launching the industry 50 years ago. You know, for a long time, it was always, you know, rows and rows of buildings with the drive, with the roll up garage doors and, you know, kind of the old style and it has evolved. Um, and again, kind of going back to meeting customers with where they want to be met. You know, people are looking for climate controlled and humidity controlled storage units. And so these these units and facilities have evolved into something that serves a more modern need. And when you start using um, multi, you know, going multi-story in the facilities, you create an, an amount of density of mm. sellable, you know, square footage 
right. that it starts to become kind of interesting and lucrative. And oh, by the way, it's it's pretty high margin as it, as it relates to operating expenses. And it's it's relatively the the cost, you know the tenant risk you you think of like as an owner is distributed among hundreds of tenants and customers. If you have a a small shopping center and let's say you have five retailers lined up in this little strip center, right. if any one of them goes out, that's twenty percent of your income that is now gone. Yeah. Well, but with a self storage facility, if they have eight or nine hundred customers, that risk is spread out across eight or nine hundred people. And it's month to month on the payments. And so they have the ability to adjust prices. So there's dynamic pricing that kind of flows with how the economy is going, how supply and demand in that trade area is going, that sort of thing. And so it's turned into more of an institutional, an institutionally accepted asset class that's, you know, look, nothing is recession, re, you know, proof. But this is pretty recession resistant and the right. steady kind of risk averse cash flow is really attractive and when you yeah, start to predictable lay, yeah it's predictable and you layer in the big institutional operators it offers an investment vehicle for you know big time investment like the blackstones of the world and the insurance companies right. and stuff like that so so public storage you're kind of on the executive side of a large public or a large self-storage development operator talk to us about your your latest role now after I guess just just shy of four years at public storage and and leading the development team in the southeast there. It's it's typical story where you you develop relationships along the way and relationships lead to opportunities and um, that happened for me. Some folks that I was working on some projects with after getting to know them several years ago. You know, we kind of over a cold beer said, you know what, this I think this would work if we worked together. <laughs> and and so the the team that I'm joining or have joined. And now we're kind of launching this new um, affiliated business um, has been in business for 70 years. They've done real estate development and construction for a very long time. They're very successful nationwide. They had interest in the asset class. And as we got to know each other, they said, Hey, you know, come and launch this new business line with us. And in this scenario, I was, you know, in a spot where, I had the the great fortune of, of of them saying, "Hey, look, we have a, a well-established team of we have you know legal and finance and project management and accounting and design and all these functions that are need to go into the development process. They had it all in-house, all well-established." I said, "You don't have to do that. Come and kind of grow off of this platform to the point where you can really launch on your own and we'll we'll help facilitate that with our, our strength and abilities. And, you know, we lean on you for the storage expertise, the executive leadership, the, you know, to help us shape and grow a business. I, I wasn't looking for an opportunity to be candid. Yeah. I was very happy with public storage, but it was one of those opportunities in life. I was like, man, this is something that I thought maybe I'd get a chance to do maybe before I retire. And I just, I couldn't say no. Yeah. The right, the right mix of entrepreneurship with stability or, or stabilized platform. Exactly. Uh, sounds, sounds like the dream. Exactly. Uh, and you've been there how long now? Two months. Brand <laughs> new. Yeah. So it's, it's Capital Growth StoreGuard is the name of our company. And Capital Growth StoreGuard. And mm -hmm. right now you are 
just trying to create deal flow and and look at land? That's right. And so we are doing a mix of development and value add acquisitions. So, you know, traditional ground up development, like I'd explained before, but also with, you know, my understanding of the industry, as well as the capabilities of our team, we have the opportunity to go out and acquire existing self-storage facilities that we see an opportunity to, you know, tune up maybe the operational aspects, make some physical improvements. We're securing them better. We're adding air conditioning. We're expanding the facility with new buildings or whatever the case may be. So we've, we've got a trained eye and a professional eye on how to do that kind of stuff. And, and so, you know, we're, we're, we've already closed on one facility and we're in the middle of, you know, sprucing it up. We've got a, a few more that are, you know, being negotiated pretty hard right now and looking to buy those. We have new land for development that's in the works too. So awesome. Um, yeah, we're, we're getting launched. It's and all about geographic. <laughs> where are you focused? Uh, we're, we're our headquarters is here in Atlanta, uh, but we are looking all we're actively looking all over the southeast as opportunities come our way from other geographies. We're wide open to that as well. Uh, we have the capability to work nationwide, really. Awesome. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified service disabled veteran owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. Switching gears a little bit, I mean, uh, unbelievable kind of career path and and almost many careers inside of different asset classes and different types of organizations. Looking back over that and and kind of your West Point and Army career, what are the leadership lessons or or any like highlight leadership lesson that you think has served you really well? Yeah, um, there's a hundred of them that come from, you know, West Point in the Army. I mean, one of the golden rules that we always talked about is you never ask anybody to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. Yeah. And for me, putting my people first and looking for ways to take care of, train, elevate, challenge, inspire, all that for them like that putting your people first always mattered the most to me. There are lots of ways to do that. And it, it's not always putting your arm around somebody and sometimes right. it's holding them accountable, right? And accountability is not a bad thing. It can be a great thing in an organization. You know, that's one piece. And another thing that I'll say is, you know, and I got, I borrow this from Greg Ferran and Walmart folks will recognize him as the CEO of Walmart us from a few years okay. ago. And he came to Walmart and we got a chance to present to Greg and some of the other executive leaders during our investment committee meetings. And one of the phrases that he brought very early on when he arrived was, I want the unvarnished truth. Just give me the unvarnished truth. And if we can't trust each other enough to lay it out on the table and analyze what's going on, if there are improvements that need to be made, something needs to be fixed, something needs to be stopped. We, we just need to talk about it. Let's move forward from where we are, but we can't do that unless we're all talking about what's really happening. That really struck a chord with me. Uh, when, I, when I went out to the distribution center, I showed up and I put a sign on the door on my office the very first day. I want unvarnished truth. And of course, people are like, well, what does that mean? Well, I explained it. And I got a chance to explain it one person at a time who asked and what it leads to 
also is feedback. And so, and so that's the way I would couch it is if somebody would come to me with something that was uncomfortable to hear, I didn't, you know, didn't like it, or it was coming at me personally, I had to kind of check myself and say, thank you for that feedback. We're going to do better. And, and so that's the way that I sort of would couch it. And it took a while, probably both for Greg and for me in that situation to hit a place where the entire team really knew and trusted that, hey, I really do want to varnish truth and I will count right. it as feedback. And, you know, we've all got to do our job and, you know, we all owe it to each other to do it the right way. But we we need to just lay it on the table and, and come at that work and, and that conversation with from a place of goodness that you know, we can continue to work on improving the enterprise. So. It's a hard, I'm just, as I'm thinking about it, one to say it as a leader, it's like, I don't want every complaint coming to me, but yeah, got to hear all of those to start seeing what the trends are and what the issues are. And so one, it's hard to say it as a leader Two, It's hard to hear it as a follower because, you know, you're trying to kind of, I don't want everybody in my stuff. I want to fix things before they're, right. you know, they, they rise up, but you know, bad news doesn't get better with time. Right. Uh, and then the overall trend of like shifting the culture to, to really truly believe like, Hey, this is what healthy looks like. If, you know, we're all in the same organization, we're all on the same team. If it, you know, if, if we're hiding stuff from each other, we're not going to get better. Yeah. And you, th- you think about like in the engineering world too, like continuous improvement is, yep. is really meaningful when you can kick it into high gear. But you can't just turn that on. You have to set that foundation and create a level of trust and, and process and that sort of thing. And but once you get there, it's it can be magical, right? I, I agree. The the thing I always reference in, in our company, especially is AAR format from the from the army mm-hmm. is like, you know, the you're the lieutenant or you're the captain and you're the leader of the of whatever exercise you just went through. And it's like all ranks off. Everybody gets to say, you know, what went right, what went wrong. And, you know, not that anybody's placing blame, but hey, LT, you had this responsibility and you didn't right. do it. Or LT, you weren't communicating that on the radio. You know, and I think that I think just the process of doing that, and especially as a leader doing it, you kind of set the tempo like, hey, I I can take blame and I can take ownership. And therefore, my expectation is everybody can can take ownership. Sure. Um, And, you know, it it flows through to the to the family, too, where I've (laughs) I've had to check myself plenty of times with my teenagers. I have to say Thanks for the feedback, <laughs> you know, but, but it's real. And I think they appreciate that too, you know? Yeah, that's great. All right. Switching gears. You've had a busy professional life. Are you doing anything outside of the work world? Are you involved in the community or, or any passion projects going on? Yeah. And, um, I, so I, I mentioned our kids, we've got three, um, and i I find that spend most of my time, um, you know, helping them, helping them with their pursuits. Um, my daughters are both very, really, very serious ballerinas. So I spent a lot of, a lot of time helping at the ballet studio and, and my son, I was in several sports, football, baseball, he's now doing track. And so he's, I did spend a fair amount of time like coaching and kind of helping on the sidelines as much as I could. He's kind of getting to a place where 
he deserves a better degree of coaching than I can offer. Um, but yeah, and uh, you know, swimmers aren't exactly expert football coaches. Yeah, no kidding. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, and another thing, BJ, it's interesting. Like we've moved around a lot, and so I don't feel yeah. like I ever got a chance to really plant roots in a community and jump in. We've been here in the Atlanta area for about four years, and so I feel like I'm I'm hitting my stride now and kind of jumping in. But at the end of the day you know, the, the types of organizations that are meaningful to me are the ones that are helping people be the best they can be. And especially veterans and veterans families, you know, that's, that's near and dear to my heart. And, um, you know, organizations like Fisher house, um, wounded warrior project, they're doing good things, you know? Agree. All right. Some rapid fire questions. Favorite quote. Uh, yeah, it comes from the great philosopher, Mike Tyson. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. (laughs) And I mean, I I think, I mean, I take that personally because I'm a planner by nature and that's great. You have to have a strategy and a plan, but the most successful people are the ones who are able to adapt and overcome when things don't go the way they expect to. And, and that's, that's what life's all about, right? You're constantly getting curveballs. Yeah. All right. How about must read book? Um, I'm just getting into one right now that I really like that it's called can't hurt me and David Goggins, David Goggins. Exactly. And, you know, to me, it's about resiliency and having a layer and level of toughness that you, you, you don't understand what you're capable of until you just go do it. You just keep going, just keep going. He's, he's a bit more than just like a, thick skin layer he is a absolute madman psychopath mm. <laughs> well, he's I've, got one to thro- I've got one to throw back to you okay uh i don't know if you remember the center for enhanced performance sure. at, at west point doc z he just wrote one called the confident mind which mm-hmm. uh talks about similar topics i mean david goggins talks about just completely making yourself uncomfortable mm-hmm. and and building grit that way confident mind is is as much mental exercise as it is physically um so i'll i'll shoot you that book well and I'd, I'd give you a shout out too i appreciate you sharing when i when i called a, a couple months ago and said hey i'm getting ready to launch this new business yeah. um traction has been a great book and anybody who's thinking about um you know kind of leaning in an entrepreneurial way or if you have an existing business that you want to kind of figure out how to take to the next level traction to the great one. Yeah. So everybody, that's Gino Wickman traction. You've probably heard me talk about entrepreneurial operating system and mm-hmm. uh, agree. It's It was the first book that I felt like gave me the framework, not just case study, not just story, but a framework to walk walk through and, right. and really tweak a business. All right, dead or alive. We've changed this question a little bit. Dead or alive. If you could have three people at a dinner table or drinking beers with you, who would they be? So I'd go for, and this is kind of a fun combo, but I'd start with Jesus. And yep. Jesus drank wine. I don't know if he drank beer, but um, <laughs> but you know, I think that there's something to be said with um, having kind of a simple wisdom that keeps you grounded in what's really most important, whether it's your faith or your principles or, you know, whatever kind of is your North star. Um, and the world we're in right now is a lot different than a couple thousand years ago, obviously, but, um, that's the kind of, um, conversation I think would be enlightening right now and kind of reassuring that you can, you can do yeah. it. 
Um, my next one would be uh, Benjamin Franklin. I've always been fascinated with him as a founding father, you know, a diplomat, an inventor. I mean, just a guy who was never satisfied with the status quo and was always pushing the envelope and trying to do something newer and better and, you know, shaking things up. Um, and my third would be uh, Will Ferrell. <laughs> so I, I think that, um, you know, there's there are a lot of things in life that are very serious, but they're also, can, you know, a degree, having a degree of levity in what you're doing can help kind of calm people. And I also, I think it'd be cool to hear Jesus laugh. So <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Last question, legacy. What do you want on your tombstone? How do you want to be remembered? Probably just that serve God, serve family, serve country, that kind of thing. But I just would want to be known as as somebody who was always willing to help other people be the best that they could be. Awesome. That gets me going. So to close us out, you get the last, you know, minute or two here. Uh, What would you say to anybody that's transitioning or, or considering the real estate development industry? What's your, your wisdom? Oh, I don't know how wise it is, but, um, you know, I'd say that there are going to be little moments along the way where you're going to get an opportunity that, and you just need to go for it. Just do it, go figure it out. And it'll be scary, but bet on yourself and you're probably capable of doing way more than you really understand. Just go for it. And on the other side of that coin is pay it back, pay it forward. Um, Mm. and so when you're in a spot where you can give somebody else a boost, open a door for them, give them a nudge or kind of just help them out, whatever way you can pay that forward, pay it back. And, um, you know, that's always rewarding in life too. Awesome. Mike Valley, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us and, uh, best of luck with the new venture. All right. Thanks BJ. Beat Navy, bud. Beat Navy. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.